Well, welcome. Uh, I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here this morning. Um, glad to be with you. It's so great to be with God's people. It's something that um, I often just take for granted, I think, and neglect in my own heart as just like a given, but it's really just a special thing, and it's a unique thing, and it's a, it's a grace that God gives us to be with one another. So I'm just thankful for it this morning. I'm just reminded of it afresh as we gather and as everybody comes in and fills the room and just to get to see each other's faces. It's just such a sweet blessing that God gives us. And so I'm, I'm so thankful for it. So thanks for being here. Um, let's open our Bibles together. Uh, thanks to Maria for reading that for us. Romans chapter 5. We're going to continue in our series in Romans as we have been over the past few months. God has really, man, God has really blessed my heart with Romans. Such a deep, uh, deep well of truth and richness and grace and glory and all these, these huge things. And it feels like we haven't even really scratched the surface yet. There's just still so much more to come. So um, I'm super thankful for it. Uh, and like last week, um, Scott brought us a message from the beginning of chapter five. So if you hadn't had a chance to catch that, I would really highly encourage you to go back and listen to that one. Uh, that one, I told Scott, I was like, that was just like a vitamin B12 shot to my gospel heart last week that I just desperately needed. So um, catch that one. But, but it, really, it really ties right directly into what we're going to be talking about today um, in the, the second chunk here of Romans chapter 5. So um, go ahead and turn to your Bibles there if you have that, if you have a Bible or open up your phone. Um, if you're a pagan, you can use your phone. No, I'm kidding. You know, you use phones. Um, but yeah, so, and, and as, we, as we heard Maria read it for us, uh, we noticed the very first word of our text today, right, is for. For. So, you know, okay, you start with for. Obviously, as we're using our good Bible interpretation skills, which, side note, P.S., there's an intro study on how to read your Bible next week, right after church. So, come to that. Um, but, if you're using your good Bible study skills... Right? Anybody who's taught you how to read the Bible well will tell you to pay attention, as we've mentioned this over and over, right? If you see the word for or therefore, you've got to ask, why is it there for? What is it, what is it referencing? It's pointing back to something that was just said and continuing that thought. So that's what we see in our passage today. It starts with this word for. And then the first, the first chunk here of Romans chapter 5, we talked about last week, you know, um, Paul is, is unpacking these glorious truths, right? The, the rejoicing and the hope of the glory of God. We're, he's talking about where we, where we rest our hope as people, as the people of God. Where does our hope come from? Is there, is there anything to this? Is there, is there anything that we can actually hang our hats on as believers? I mean, these, are, these are huge, huge truths that we talked about last week. And... He closes out that chunk with, with verse 5, and it says, he, he builds up to this sort of crescendo. He says, in hope, he's talking about hope through suffering. He says, in hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, that's a monumental sentence. So, so far in the book of Romans... And we've mentioned this a couple times. As we've been reading through this, it's all, it all sounds very legal. It sounds like a lawyer sort of giving a defense in court. There's all these legal terms that are being thrown around. Justification, judgment, law, propitiation, all these things. They're, they're very legal in their nature. 
And here in this, in this portion of the, the book of Romans is actually the first reference that we see Paul make to the word love. This is the first place we see the word love show up in this book. But we have to be careful because it's not, he's not saying like, okay, now that we've got all that legal stuff out of the way, now we're going to shift gears and we're going to start talking about God's love. Right? It's not what he's doing. He's not shifting gears into love. He's, he's sort of summarizing everything that he has said so far by saying, okay, all of that happens within the context of God's love. That's the context that gives context to everything that we've just read. It's not a separate thing from all the legal proceedings that we just went through, right? Of, of Jesus stepping into our place, taking the punishment, the law not being fulfilled, all these legal things. He's like, none of that happens outside of God's love. It's all actually a part of it. And actually, he says, a demonstration of God's love. So he's building up to this great crescendo, summarizing it with, Okay, it all goes into this package of God's love. And so it's really important for us to remember that, right? We're not shifting gears. It's like, we're not, it's, it's like the Old Testament doesn't shift gears into the New Testament of angry, mean God to nice, happy God, right? We see it's this sort of like fulfillment of it. It's the same thing. We're not, we're not changing gears to something different. He, he's pointing back to and referencing and summarizing what he's already been talking about. And so... It brings up a question for us this morning. How do we know that God's love is real? How do we know that his love for us is real? Is it real? And how do we know? Do we know that he actually loves us? Is that just an abstract idea to us? Do we hope that God loves us? Do we wonder? I think it's a very important question. I see part of the problem for us here is that love is a pretty tricky word for us in English here in the 21st century, right? Westerners especially. Our English language doesn't really serve us well when it comes to this idea. And pastors love doing sermons on all the different words for love, right? We're not going to do a sermon on all the words for love, but you've probably heard it a lot of times if you've been around church. But it is important to, re- to remember, right, that, that when we say love, we have to look at all the context around it to actually understand what we mean when we say it. Because we can say a sentence like, I love how much you love pizza, my love. We, we get what that means. We use the same word three times in three different ways. Are the, is it all the same? Or is it the same word? Does it all have the same meaning? Is it all the same depth? Do I love my wife the same as I love the pizza? Do it, does she love the pizza more than she loves me? Like, how, how do we handle this? The Greek helps us more, and that's, thankfully the Bible was written in Greek, so it's, it gives us a little better ground to work with. All right, so we see these, these different types of love that we see in the Greek language, right? There's, there's a word for, like, friendship love. There's a word for romantic love. And there's a word that we see here used in this particular text that's different than those. It's this word agape, right? Probably heard that word, agape. Agape signifies an action, signifies a commitment. It's, it's sort of... More than just a feeling, right? As a 70s rock band would say, it's more than a feeling. What was that, what was that band? Boston. What a dated reference. Holy cow. Everybody's like, what are you talking about? Well, you, I figured you would know. You knew it though, right? You know why I pointed to you. Because you knew the answer. It's more than a feeling. And, and it's important for us to remember, right? It's Agape is not... 
entirely based upon the feelings of the person involved. It doesn't rise or fall based upon emotion. I don't, if I, if I agape you, I don't love you more one day and less another day based on how I feel. It's a, it's a commitment. It's an action toward another person. It's, uh, you hear this word, you hear God's love referenced in the Old Testament as being steadfast, right? Steadfast love of the Lord over and over and over and over again. This is the picture, right? It's God's steadfast, committed love. It's different than often how we reference love as an emotional thing. It's a feelings-based thing. There are certainly feelings involved, but it's not based upon those feelings. And that's important for us to make that distinction. Agape is not based on one person's response to something lovable in the other person. Whereas a romantic love would be based upon that, right? A friendship love would be based upon, hey, I like you. You have qualities that I like. I think you're pretty, I, right? Whatever it is. And so based on that, I love you. But that's not what this is. This is not based upon something that we find lovable in the other person or that God finds lovable in us, as we will see in verses 6 through 8 here in our text. Let's look down at this. Verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because up until now, right, Paul has made this case that we are unable. He's made it very, very clear in the first four chapters of Rome. We've, we've been, Romans, we've been beating it into our heads like, we are unable to accomplish what God requires in his law. This is, this, this we can't miss. This whole point about humanity is that on our own, we are weak. And because we are weak, under the weight of the law, we cannot carry it. We're weak. We cannot carry the law on our own. And this makes us ungodly. But here we see something amazing, right? And we get sort of smacked in the face again with this incredible good news. It says God makes a way for the weak and the ungodly. He makes a way for those who are weak. Notice the timing of it, right? It's really important to note the timing language that is given here. While we were still weak. While we were sinners. The timing of it is is huge. It gives us. It shows us the depth and the beauty of it. it shows us the the breadth and the width of God's love. God's love takes the initiative. That's what it shows us. That God's love takes the initiative. That's agape love. That's a love moving toward His people. God moving toward first His people. It's initiative. The timing shows us. He doesn't wait for us to make the first move toward him. This is different than most other religions, right? This is different than than anything else that we see in culture. God takes initiative. He loves us first. He loves us before we become worthy of his love. He loves us before we get our act together. While we were still weak, while we were unable to bear the weight of the law, while we were in the midst of sinning, 
while we were even before we were even born and had the opportunity to sin, knowing that we would still sin, Christ died for the ungodly. This is different. This is just different than what we're used to. It's different than what we see all around us. It's different than what we see on TV. It's different than how we usually act with one another. It's different. And Paul knows this. He recognizes this. This is why he gives us the next verse. In verse 7, He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. This is a picture of transactional love, right? Shallow love that most of us live in. This is the kind of love that we typically see in the world around us. Sacrificial love is rare. It's very rare. We hardly ever see it. When we do see it, it happens to people that we deem worthy to receive it. You might see a parent lay down their life for their child, a soldier protecting his fellow soldiers or, or dying for a nation that he loves and cares about. In other words, in, in the world's idea of love, You give up your life for your family to protect them from the enemy. That's what we're used to. That's good. That's a good thing. What we see here is something different, though. This is something deeper even than that. Here we see that Jesus' idea of love is to give up his life for his enemy to make them his family. You see how he flips it on his head? Right? Our idea of love is we, we protect our family from the enemy. Jesus says, no, I'm actually going to die for my enemy to make them my family. It's much deeper. It's different than our type of love. This is what Paul is showing us, the contrast between how God loves us and how we typically love one another in our shallow ways. It's really important for us to understand. Because he's illustrating, right? He's illustrating back to the beginning of chapter 5, in, ver- in verse 5, he's talking about why we, can have, why we can and why we should have hope in the midst of suffering. He's, he's saying that, that okay, when, when life gets hard, when the rubber really meets the road, is there something that we can know and hang our hat on? Is something that's real, real? Or is it all just ethereal? Because it's, he, he recognizes that what, what we all, most of us in here know to be true, right? In the midst of trial is when we are most prone to doubt that God actually loves us. If we're honest, we, we recognize that. It's when we face trials in our life, when things get hard, when we get the diagnosis, when the spouse leaves, when the kid, like whatever it is, that's when we're most prone to doubt. Does God really love me? That's, that's where our minds typically tend to naturally go. When I, we start to ask that question. Does God really love me? And those doubts can get very loud. They can get very loud. They can be overwhelming if we're not careful. If God loved me, how could he let this happen? That's, I think if we're all honest, we've all sort of in some way, shape, or form, ask a question like that, or been really close to somebody who's asked that question. It's a fair question. 
But we have to, we have to encounter it with truth. We can't just let, we can't let the doubts, we have to doubt our doubts, so to speak, right? Surely, he has had enough of my mess. After all, I know that I wouldn't put up with me after what I did, after what I've done, right? Maybe it's self-inflicted. Like, there's no way God could still love me after what I've done. There's no way. And if God were like us, we would have every reason to believe that. That's why Paul is saying God is not like us. God's love is not like our love. And that's a really, really good thing. He doesn't love you like your friends love you. He doesn't love you like your bad parents loved you. He doesn't love you like your boss loves you. He doesn't love you like, he doesn't love you like that. We have, to, we, have to, we have to lean into what that actually means. We can't just accept that. We, we, we have to see, okay, is that actually real? And this is, what, this is what this is all about. This is what he's saying. He's like, there's actually realness to this. And we get to see it. There's a demonstration of it. And it's a really good thing. It's not like our love. So, I've seen this trend in our culture. If you get on social media, you see it all the time. You probably have seen it too. It's kind of a disturbing trend, I think. You see it a lot. It's this idea, and see if you can track with me on this, and see if you know what I'm talking about. It's the idea that this sort of cavalierness of like, hey, uh, just cut anyone out of your life who doesn't give back to you the level of love that you give to them. Right? Have you seen ideas like this floating around? little memes and posts and Instagram stories of like, look, if they don't give you the love that you're giving to them, you just cut them off. You kick them out of your life. I see it all the time. I did a little Google search just to see if my theory was correct. Here's a couple that just pop up right away. These little sayings, right? These little memes that people post. Life becomes easier when you delete the negative people from it. One of the biggest mistakes I have made in my life is letting people stay longer than they deserve. These sound like just normal things that people post on Facebook, right? If I cut you off, chances are you handed me the scissors. That was my favorite one. <laughs> but you've heard things like this. You see things like this all the time, I would assume. It's, it's, a, it's a mindset that's sort of creeping into our culture, this like, it, often you hear, you hear words like, these people are toxic. These toxic people. Cut these toxic people out of your life. I've heard that. There, there's lots more. Can I just encourage you today that that is a lie from the devil? <laughs> it just is. Like, that is an antichrist. That is an antichrist way of thinking. That is not love for others that is shaped by Christ's love for us. And it seems really, it seems like a small thing. It seems like just a little, it seems to kind of like make sense sometimes. We're like, yeah, you know what? I probably should cut them out of my life. They are annoying, right? We, we kind of all like resonate with it in, in, at first, I think. We just have to be really careful with it, I think. Because I, I, you can see it sort of creeping more and more. And uh, certainly there are caveats to this, right? Like, there's wisdom in how much time we spend with those people. Sure. Certainly we don't um, 
Certainly there are times where we need to avoid abusive people. Definitely. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm talking about just like the general principle in and of itself of like, okay, I'm setting up, I'm, I'm posturing myself in a certain way where there's an assumption, right, that my love is benevolent and it's agape. And if you don't receive it, well, then I'm out. And it's just, it's just, it's anti-Christ. It's not, we just have to be careful, I think. That's kind of a side note, but I just see that a lot. And I, and I think it doesn't reflect what we're seeing here in God's word. So, so be careful. Just be mindful of it. Ask the Lord to help us with it. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's a far cry from life becomes easier when you delete the negative people from it. That's opposite, right? That's the exact opposite. We can see that. God's love for us is concrete. It doesn't float around in the air. It doesn't rise or fall based on emotions. God's love, as we see here, is grounded in His character, and it is demonstrated, how? In His action toward us through Christ. He demonstrates His love for us. He shows us. So if we doubt it, if we wonder, we have something to point to. This is agape love. This is committed love, steadfast love, love that takes initiative. Love that loves often in spite of the other. God loved us in spite of ourselves. Thankfully, He did not give us what we deserve. We have handed him the scissors often, right? But he doesn't cut us out. He doesn't cut us off. He remains steadfast. He remains committed to us. As I'm reading this passage, I can't can't help but think of 1 John chapter 4. Maybe you're familiar with it. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. 1 John chapter 4. It's a lot of the same language. 1 John 4 9 says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Same kind of language, right? The love of God showing up, demonstrated among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. See the, the, the same language? But then he, goes, and then he goes on, right? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Same language. And then in verse 11, he drives it home. Beloved, right? Those who have been loved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And the implication is, in the same way. (laughs) Not, Not just a new kind of love that we love them with what we think love is. No, we look to his example of love, and we model that example towards those around us. This is a huge problem in our, in our church, even in our churches, right? We say God is love. Okay, great. So then we think, okay, well, what is love? Okay, that must be what God is. What do I think love is? And then I'll put that on God. And that's backwards, right? We don't start with ourselves and think, okay, what is love? Okay, that must be what you said God is love, so that must be what he is. No, we look to him first. You say, okay, you tell us what love is. That's what 1 John 4 is saying. God, you tell us what love is so that we know. We know that you are love, so we're going to look to you first to define it for us. This is different than our culture's view of love. Our, culture, our cultural view of love would say, if you don't affirm everything about me, you don't love me. 
is that true? Sounds kind of true. And that's what I, if that's what I think love is, like, well, but yeah, I, I like it when people affirm me. So if I don't affirm you, then that means, that means I must love you. But we just see, we saw the first couple of chapters of Romans that God was speaking the truth, right? And he was telling us the truth about ourselves. And he was not affirming us in Romans 1, 2, and 3. He was not affirming us and saying, you guys are great. You're doing fine. Don't change a thing. He's like, no, you've got to change everything. And that was the most loving thing that he could have said to us. You need to change everything about you. And in fact, I'm going to do it for you. That's the most loving thing that he could have done to us. He could have, if he could have left us in our state, that would have been unloving. He could have affirmed us and said, well, whatever you, whatever you feel, you should just go with that. And No, he says, actually, everything that you feel is working against me, and it's bad for you. See the difference? We've got we to gotta, we gotta be able to recognize these, these things that are spinning at us at a thousand miles an hour and wait, hold on. Is that what, is that what I'm seeing here? I think if we, if we look hard enough, it's not. God's love is different than our love. It's so different that when we experience it, it changes our love for one another. It changes us. We experience the love of God as God pours himself into us through the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, that's what it just said. And it, it is his spirit in us that enables us to now love others in this way. He's not asking us to do this in our own flesh. He's not saying, okay, love people like I love you so that I will love you more. He says, no, I've already loved you. I loved you first. We just read that. I loved you first, and I've given you my spirit. I've poured my love into you through my spirit. So now... You walk in the Spirit. And what's one of the fruit of the Spirit? Love. It's the first one they list. I've, to me, I find it helpful to read back through that passage in 1 John. So we're going to read it back together. We're going to take out the word love and we're going to put in agape. I think it, just hel- it helps me think of it better. So if you have it in front of you, read through it. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 9. I'm going to take out all the word love and I'm going to go back to the Greek and use agape. Because every one of those loves is from the word agape. You ready? In this, the agape of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is agape. Not that we agaped God, but that he agaped us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Agaped. If God so agaped us, we also ought to agape one another. You see how it changes the, the, the way it lands? It does for me. It lands on me differently when I use the real word. It's not just saying, it's not just, we're not just throwing out this word love frivolously. It's a very specific kind of love that he's talking about. It's a different kind of love than we're used to. Because God has agape us, we can now agape one another. And this is what he's calling us to. This is what he's calling us to. But thankfully, his love is real. And we can know that it is real because we have a historical demonstration of it. We have a historical demonstration of God's love. Don't let anyone ever tell you that there's no historical data to prove God. We have historical records of a man 
who lived in Palestine in the first century. His name was Jesus. That's historical data. That man went to a Roman cross and was crucified. That's historical. He was crucified on a Roman cross at the hands of the Jews on a hill called Golgotha. That really happened. It's not just a myth. It's not just a fairy tale. That really, actually, historically happened. Now, now we could talk about the significance of that, and that's what we're doing here today. We're, we're saying, okay, what is the significance of that? But you have to work really, really hard to deny the historical accuracy of that. There's some who would try, but the, the data suggests that they're wrong. That actually happened. So the question is, what do we do with it? Well, we have this letter here that's telling us what we should do with it. We should look at it, and we should say, you know what that is? That's actually a demonstration of God's love for his people. That's what that was. You saw it happen. Let me tell you what happened. Let me give you context for what that was. That was a demonstration of God's love for you and I, for his people. That's what it was. It, was, it happened. That's significant. It happened because God was manifesting his love in a way for his people to be reconciled back to him, that we could have peace with him, that we could be saved from the wrath that we had earned. That's what happened. Historically, spiritually, theologically, that's what happened. And in verse 9, Paul's like one of those infomercial guys. He's like, but wait, there's more. There's more. Not only can we rest in the fact that God is the one who has saved us by his grace. That Christ died for us while we were sinners. We can also trust that the one who brought us into salvation by his power will keep us in his salvation by his power. The news continues to get better. God's love keeps and sustains his love takes initiative his love is different than ours it's agape right it's he loves us in spite of us and he moves toward us in spite of us changing us pouring himself into us through his holy spirit those who of us who are who have received him and now by his love he keeps us and he sustains us he holds us look in verse 9 since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, praise God, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, the future wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. It's kicking it up a notch. By his life? Like what? Paul is saying that we can have hope that if Jesus was willing to go to the cross for us while we were God's enemies, why would he change his mind and abandon us now that we are his friends? Why would he do that? If he moved toward us when we were his enemies, why would he be inclined to move away from us now that we are his reconciled family? 
Don't believe that. If he committed himself to love us while we were at war with him, why would he give up on us now that we are at peace with him? Because of his blood shed for us, we will not receive God's wrath now or in the future. And in verse 10, he takes it even deeper. If Christ is able to save us by his death, how much more is he capable of saving us now that he is resurrected to life? Christ is actively, at this moment, alive. (laughs) He's alive right now. It says that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's advocating for us, and he's interceding for us. This is what the Bible tells us. How often do you think of that? Be honest with yourself. How often do you remind yourselves? For me, it's not very much. How often do we remember that Jesus is alive right now, and that he is in this very moment, sitting at the right hand of his Father, advocating for us and interceding for us as our great high priest. That's crazy. We are united with him. It says that. It says that we are united with him in his death. Yes, we need that, right? We need to be united with him in his death because if not, then we don't have justification for our sins. That's important. <laughs> That's what we've been talking about this whole time up until this point. But now he's saying, but we're also united with him in his resurrection. We talked about in Ephesians 2 where it says he has seated us with Christ in the heavens. He's united us with Christ right now in the heavens. We are united with him. We are one with him. Our reconciliation was brought about by him and it lives as long as he lives. Did you catch that? Our reconciliation to God, our peace with God lives as long as Jesus lives. If he's alive, then we're alive with him. And we are at peace with God because of him. If we are in him, if we are united with him, it rises and falls on him, right? If he's alive, we're alive. We're to union with Christ. As Keller says, the God who opened heaven to us will ensure that we arrive there. That's good news. That, that helps you sleep at night. Right? When we can look back at the historical demonstration of Jesus' love for us and now trust that his promise to us when he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said that to us. He said that. He said, I'm going to the Father to, to intercede for you and to advocate for you. Right? The God who opened heaven to us will assure that we will get, he's assured that we will get there. He'll make it, he'll make it happen. And finally, in verse 11, we get this great result. We get joy. We get joy. This is, this is the result of these truths in our hearts and in our lives. It's joy. Verse 11 says, more than that, like, think about what he just, like, more than that? Like, seriously, there's more than that? He keeps saying that, and more than that, and more than that, and even more than that. Like, more than that, <laughs> not only have you been justified when you didn't deserve it, and brought into Christ's fa- Jesus' family as his friend and his brother, united with him in his death and his resurrection, 
And he's sitting, sitting beside the Heavenly Father right now, interceding and advocating for you. And you're, you're promised to be with him forever, an inheritance with him in the heavens for the rest of eternity. Oh yeah, and more than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He said, even right now, you get joy. We get, to, we get to have joy right now. It's not just some, it's not all just some future thing that we all hope to see. We get, we get a taste of the joy now in our hearts, in our lives. We can, we can have actual happiness and joy. And people like to pit those words against each other sometimes. I don't like that. Happiness and joy in Christ can be had right now. It's a little more elusive than it will be someday. But it can be had. And it's, and it's available to us in Christ. God gives us joy. God's love gives us joy. Joy comes from remembering and continuing to remember that we are reconciled to God through Christ as a free gift of grace. We rejoice and we exult in our King as we live in the truth that He has done it all. True and lasting joy, what we all really want. It's what we all really want. That's what everyone's chasing after, whether they know it or not. But it's only found in Him. It really, it really is. And I don't say that like apologetically, like, I'm sorry, like, no, it really is. It really is found in Him. Like, it's there. It's really found in Christ. We can search the world over and we'll not find it. We can look everywhere. This is why God gives us this, the, the story of Solomon, his life. He's like, look, trust me. I've done it all. I've, I've turned over every stone, lifted every rock, looked behind every corner. I've been on every reality show. Right? I've won every lottery ticket. It's not there. It's not there. You're not going to find that depth of joy and happiness. You'll get it for a minute. You'll get it for a second. It just goes away, and you're like, ah, it goes through, your hand. It goes through our hands, doesn't it? We feel it for a minute, and it's like, oh, ah, lost it. It slips, it slips through our fingers. Because it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's meant to point to something else, right? It's meant to point to the, to the real source of joy. It's meant to point us back to the real source of happiness. Those things will always let us down. Always. And that's, if we know that going in, that's, but that's okay, right? It doesn't mean we just we have to become monks and, and live in a van down by the river. Like, we, we can have good things in life. But we, have to, we have to understand that those things are not going to do for us what Jesus can only do for us. They never deliver on what we are asking of them. And they aren't meant to. Placing our hope in anything other than Christ will leave us disappointed and it will leave us unsatisfied. Augustine says like this, he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. you feel, we feel that, don't we? I think we are seeing unprecedented levels of restless hearts in our world. I, I mean... Maybe I don't have a way of measuring it, obviously. 
But every person that I talked to, including myself, we're just restless of heart. That's why we keep scrolling. Like, come on, something. Please, something, land and f- fix this. I'm rest. I feel it. And we can scroll until the end of Facebook and we'll never find it. Our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And then once we rest in him, then everything else locks into place. It helps us to, to rightfully process the things that are going on around us. It gives us, it gives us the right grid to see our life through. It helps us to be able to handle all these other things, not with this tight grasp of like, oh, you have to help me. No, we can be open-handed with what we have now because we found our rest where it actually belongs. We found our peace where it actually comes from. We have hope in what we actually should put our hope in. We have true and actual lasting joy instead of fleeting sugary joy. We know this too well. The restless, untethered heart. My heart feels oftentimes just untethered to Christ. And it it causes me to feel restless, anxiety, worry, fear. That's when those things creep in. When I'm untethered to the source of joy, I feel it. And our world trades heavy in lesser replacements. There's no shortage of things that we can pursue. We will never exhaust them all. And we'll never find what we're looking for. Our hearts were created to rest in God. But when we look to Christ, we can stop searching. Jesus says, all right, come to me because you're laboring and you're heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. You won't be restless anymore. My yoke is easy and my burden is light because I'm the one actually carrying it. (laughs) You don't have to carry the weight of the law anymore. You don't have to carry the weight of your failure. You don't have to carry the weight of your sin You don't have to carry the weight of unmet expectations. You don't have to carry the weight of cancer. You don't have to carry the weight of racism. You don't have to carry the weight. You don't have to carry the weight of all these things anymore. They're big, serious, daunting, heavy things that weigh us down. And we're inundated with them every day. And Jesus says, Come come on, come to me. Come to me. And I'll give you rest. Isn't that what we want? Not just like the ability to plop down on the couch. Like, we all do that too much anyway, probably. But he's saying not just, not just the ability to, like, take a load off, but, like, true, deep down, in your heart, soul rest. Is your soul able to rest? Do you feel like your soul is resting? Even, you ever felt that feeling when your body is really rested, but your soul is not rested? It's not really rest, is it? I can lay around all day and do nothing and feel exhausted. Why? Because my soul is not rested in Christ. I'm not putting my trust in him. My hope is not in him. And it makes me feel exhausted. And Jesus says, come to me and I will give you what you most want and what you most need. Rest. His promise to us. God's word, his promise to us is that in his presence is the fullness of joy. 
in his presence is the fullness of joy. It means that there's no place to go to get more joy than in the presence of Jesus. To be united with him, to be with him, to be abiding in him, to be tethered to him. That's the only place we can find it. So let's stop looking in other places. Will you join me in that? Like we, let's together, let's just give up on that. And, and help each other. And talk to each other about it. That's, that's why we need each other to say, hey, like, I, don't, I can't even figure out where I'm putting my, my hope. I, it seems like I think I'm putting in Jesus, but I still don't feel the rest, right? We can help each other with it. He's given us his spirit. He's poured his love into us through his Holy Spirit that unites us together. So we share in one spirit and we can help each other in the power of his spirit. Not in our flesh. Remember, it doesn't give us help at all. But his spirit gives us help to show us the areas of our hearts, the things that we need to let go of, things that we need to abandon, the identities that we need to release, the cravings that we have that are destroying us. Let's release them to him. Let's pray. God, we need your help. We thank you that you are so kind and merciful to give it to us. We love you and we praise you. God, would you help us this morning? Would you help us even right now, uh, in this moment even, to show us in our hearts? Uh, maybe we, we know you. Maybe we love you. Maybe we've, we've been united to you, but, but we've become distracted. And we've become uh, untethered in some ways in our hearts from abiding in you. God, would you remind us that you move closer to us in those moments? That you don't reject us? You haven't rejected us while we're sinners, so you're not going to reject us now that we're yours, that we've been reconciled to you. So would you help us now? Even in this room, God, would you, would you minister to our hearts? Would you expose things? Would you lead us to, to confess even our sin this morning? Maybe after service we would find somebody and we would say, hey, man, I'm just really struggling with this. Would you pray for me? Find a trusted friend and just and just unload some some sin that we've been that we've been holding on to. Things that we've been trusting in that aren't you. And we would just we would do what you tell us to do to confess our sins one to another so that we can receive healing from them. How would you help us to do that even today? In our MCs this week, in our DNA groups. And we would pick up the phone and call somebody and say, hey, I just need you to pray for me about this. Like, I'm really struggling with this. God, would you help us to do that? Would you give us freedom in this? God, you've, you've, you've set us free so that we can actually be free. So would you help us to walk in that freedom? But we need you to do it. So help us, Lord. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.